the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or estate law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He's been recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. Call him now at 866-970-9622. That's 866-970-9622 and Ask the Lawyer. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. Tonight I'm accompanied by my son, Mike Connors. Good evening. Okay, so, um, you know, the first thing I guess we better mention the passing of President George Herbert Walker Bush. Uh, You know, I was driving by Fort Hamilton today and I saw the flag at uh, half-mast. And, you know, it's, it's, he's the last of the generation you know, I obviously I'm a little bit more conservative than George Herbert Walker Bush was, but one thing, you know, was always in my mind: the man had class. I've I heard him speak. I don't know how many times, you know, in person. I don't know how many times I saw him speak over the years because he used to come to New York quite a bit when Ronald Reagan was president. And he was vice president, of course. Even after he was president, he would come here once in a while. But the gentleman had class, and you and he was a great public servant. He was a you know in World War Two. Um, diplomatic corps. He was ambassador to China, head of the CIA, vice president of the United States. Got a raw deal, I think, in his election, in or his re-election campaign in 1990. But uh, you know, God rest in peace. It's in a better world right now. So, those of you who don't know about the show, it's uh, it's usually in two parts. The first part of the show is about estate planning and elder law, and the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bill. The second part of the show, we talk about politics, history, religion, and tonight we're going to be talking a little bit about politics. We're going to be talking to Steve Scalise, who was shot down in Washington you know, a while back and, and almost died, and the story is really horrific, and it, it's, but it's inspirational that he did live. And then we're going to be talking about another inspirational character, Archbishop Fulton Sheen. And there's going to be an event honoring Bishop Sheen at the Sheen Center, of all places, on December 9th. But first, I think, let's start with the phone. Let's start with the phones. And we've got Steve on the line. Yes, Steve. Uh, Hi, Mr. Connors. Uh, Yeah, my name's Steve. I just got a couple questions. I got an aunt who um, is getting... uh, um, discharge from a rehab out in Queens uh, pretty soon. Um, and anyway, my, my question is is that uh, my mom's been talking to the social workers, and uh, they're saying something about when she gets discharged, they can get the government to pay for it, but she got to give up, like, some of her income. 
Um, and then some of her money has to go in my mom's name. It, the whole thing's pretty crazy. And then the, the thing that bothers us is that we have to still give up some of her income. Why can't we just you know, keep her income? You know what I mean? Yeah, well, this is I, I'm really surprised right now because some social workers don't seem to have heard about the term pooled income trust. Now, here's one thing. Your grandma, she does have to get below $15,000 on the first day of the month that she applies for home care Medicaid, which is what you're talking about. So that's not that hard to do. The social worker is saying maybe make a gift to your mother. We may be able to put in the trust, you know, that uh, your mother controls or somebody else in the family controls, depending on the amount of the money. But getting back to the income, your grandmother's allowed to set up a pooled income trust. And, and what a pooled income trust is... Technically, and I'm going to use even numbers, technically, if your monthly income is over $850 a month, you're not eligible for home care Medicaid. But there's a program allowed where you put your excess income into what we call a pooled income trust. That pooled income trust then pays for certain expenses such as rent, food, gas, electric, whatever. And it acts as a checking account, and so you really don't lose the money. You really don't lose the money. It's a checking account. Now, it's monitored. There is some paperwork involved, but once the system gets started, it works fairly easy. If, if would you say, uh, your grandma had $1,500 a month income? Yeah, exactly. And, and like, they're saying that she's got to, like, give up some of it and just give it back to the government. I, I thought that was wrong. I thought when she was, when the social worker was going on about that, like, she, she didn't know what she was talking about. And I guess it sounds like I was pretty much right. Yes, you are. So in other words, we can take $600 a month roughly out of your mother's name and her Social Security payments, put it into a pooled income trust. She can apply for Medicaid, the $600 a month, depending on her expenses. I mean, it could pay for a rent. If she owns a house, the house better be in a trust. We can pay for the real estate taxes, whatever. But we can use that $600 in effect as a checking account. The only thing it is, it has to go through a not-for-profit. Uh, it's a little bit of paperwork, but to save $600 a month for the rest of your grandmother's life, is worth it. And, you know, that, that that's the problem when you're dealing with some of these people. you you got to get the right advice because I've seen too many people lose hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not more, because they relied on the work, uh, rely, hide on, relied on the word of a social worker who may or may not be meaning well, who may be working for a nursing home, not the family, and in any event is not a lawyer. And a lot of times, too, like giving the money to your mom, that could be a problem if your mom got sick or something like that, if it was a lot of money. If your mom got sick, it could be used maybe for her medical bills, nursing home bills. And that's why ordinarily we'd like it to put in the trust. But it's all relative depending on how much money, you know, we we're transferring over. So does that satisfy you, Steve? Yeah, it sounds great. I okay, Queens. The, uh, the, the information. You can come into our Bayside office or our Middle Village office, either one. Oh, great. Yeah, Middle Village ain't too far. Okay. All right, All right. Thanks for calling Thank in, Steve. Thank you. All right. We're on Metropolitan Avenue in uh, Middle Village. Okay. We're going to take a short break. We'll be coming back in a few minutes. And, and later in the show, again, we're going to be talking to Congressman Steve Scalise, and we're going to be talking about Archbishop Fulton Sheen. Thank you for listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. Hello, this is Father Frank Pavone of Priests for Life. The pro-life movement is winning. One of the signs of progress is the growing mountain of medical evidence that abortion harms women, men, and families. Even researchers who identify themselves as pro-choice are coming to this conclusion and publishing their research. Abortion advocates try to hide and bury this information. 
but so much of it continues to come out that their efforts to hide it will not succeed much longer. Abortion really destroys itself. The more it continues, the more it reveals itself as an enemy of the human family. Those who advocate abortion say they care about women's health. But if they do, then they will have no honest rationale for ignoring the harm that abortion does. As the mountain of medical evidence against abortion grows, so should our hope that it will end. This is Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life. Whether you need help with drafting a will or trust, power of attorney, health care proxy, living will, or protecting your assets from nursing home costs, Connors & Sullivan's goal is always the protection of your rights and interests. The professionals at Connors & Sullivan have been helping people like you plan their estates and protect their families for over 30 years. I'm Mike Connors. Come to our office for a free initial consultation. Talk with me or one of our experienced attorneys to see how we can help you protect your family, your assets, and your legacy. There is no one strategy that fits everyone, but the biggest mistake when it comes to estate planning is no planning at all. Call Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law today to schedule a free initial consultation with an attorney at any of their convenient locations in Brooklyn, Midtown Manhattan, Queens, and Staten Island. 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Or visit their website site connorsandsullivan.com Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got a question for Mike? Call him at 866-970-9622. That's 866-970-9622. Okay, welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me Mike Connors. Most of you know each week Kevin McCullough, who's on this station, 970 The Answer, Monday through Friday at 5 o'clock. Uh, it's cat, he also co-hosts Cats at Night on Wednesdays, but he's on from 4 o'clock on, on Wednesdays. And, of course, he's on WMCA, 570 The Mission, from Monday through Friday at 3 o'clock. Each week he gets a question forwarded to him about estate planning and elder law, and we try to give an answer. So here's our question of the week from Kevin, Kevin McCullough. McCullough. Glad you're with us. Every week we promise you that Mike Connors is going to answer one of your questions about estate uh, care or elder law. And uh, this week is no exception. What are the consequences of not having a power of attorney prepared in the case of incapacitation? Now, this could happen to anybody at any time. I mean, who knows what's going to actually happen to you when you step off a sidewalk on any given day? Mike Connors, what's your answer? Well, you know, that that is a very good question because... You know, the, the results could be catastrophic. You don't have a power of attorney. And let's say you're mentally incapacitated. Many times you have to go to court and go to guardian appointed. And a guardianship proceeding is extremely embarrassing to the person who's what they call the AIP, the alleged incapacitated person, because sometimes you get court-appointed lawyers who ask questions like, who's the president of the United States, uh, things like that, which can be terribly embarrassing to a person who has limited capacity. And not only that, it's expensive. You know, lawyers get court-appointed lawyers who, you know, make money off these guardianships. So you're paying for your own family lawyer. You're paying for a court-appointed lawyer. You may be paying for an independent uh, review lawyer, so to speak. Hmm. It gets expensive. And after that, everything has to go through the court. Hmm. If you have a power of attorney, and assuming you have a person you can trust, and that's a big assumption, too, but assuming you have a person you can trust, they can handle this all without going through court. And for the most part, you know, as part of state planning and elder law, 
we want to avoid going through court. That's our goal. Right. And if you don't have a power of attorney, you're asking for it. And then sometimes hundreds, if, if not a million dollars, could be lost through the guardianship between having to get courts work in a very slow manner. You, you want to get court approval to do something. It may take nine months. It may take a year. Right. Well, friends, so. it's it's uh, something to think about. And if you have more questions about it, call Mike's office, 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. And if you've got a question for Mike Connors, ask Mike Connors at gmail.com. He'll answer it right here at Kevin McCullough Radio. Ask Mike Connors at gmail.com. And then be listening to Ask the Lawyer, Saturday mornings at 8 on AM 570, The Mission, and Saturday evenings at at 6 on AM 970, The Answer. Mike Connors, thanks so much. Thank you, Kevin. Okay, now, Michael, you have one of those email questions. Can you read that? E- you can read that quickly because we're running out a little bit of time. Yes, I do. All right. Um, this email question is from Brad. Hi, I'm concerned about my brother's affairs as I believe his daughter may be taking advantage of him. He has two daughters. One daughter has a power of attorney, and she misuses the POA to steal all of her dad's money to spend online shopping for clothes and other things, excessively spending the money every day. An inheritance was supposed to be split between the two daughters of about $60,000, 50% each. The daughter with the POA takes fifty k for herself and gave her sister 10000 The one with the power of attorney has spent all of the 50000 buying a new car and on expensive vacations. Since she had a power of attorney, she didn't give any of the 10000 to her sister and said she bought her a trailer and an old used car that broke down two months after. Now she is trying to take the trailer back, this is the sister with the power of attorney, because it was in her name. She wants to take everything back for herself. She is selfish. Is this legal? What can you do? The sister with no power of attorney got screwed every time. Thanks a lot, Brad. Well, technically it's not legal. Of course, we'd have to take a look at the power of attorney because maybe it is. Because maybe the sister that's taken everything has left most of the assets in the estate plan. <laughs> Excuse me. So we might have to take a look at that. But here's a question. Can there be a family meeting? I mean, is the brother mentally competent? Is the reason the power of attorney is being used because he's not mentally competent? Can the uncle sit down with the two nieces and work something out? Technically, it's not legal. And then the nuclear option is what we just talked about with Kevin. Somebody goes to court and gets its guardian appointed and asks for court intervention. Now, ordinarily, we don't want to go to court. We don't have to go. We don't want to have to go to court and get court intervention. But at the same time, if one family member is clearly abusing the power of attorney, which seems to be the case in this example, you know, the only alternative in some cases is to go to court and ask the judge to look at it and maybe revoke the power of attorney. I might be worth a family discussion first. Everybody sit down, see if they can work it out. But if you can't work it out. That's what the court system is there for, and, and it could be ugly, but you got to ask yourself this question, which is worse, having an ugly court um, situation or, you know, just let the power of attorney continue and rip, uh, rip her father off and rip her sisters off. And that's an unfortunate thing about a power of attorney. Um, every once in a while, you give a power of attorney to the wrong person, they can wipe you out and they can steal you blind, and that's what we got to be careful about. Okay. We're going to take another short break. At the end of the break, we're going to be talking to Congressman Stephen Scalise. We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death. And it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. 
Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646, or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash fmelia once again call 888-943-2646 and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement frank melia nmls number 62591 all loans provided by quantic bank nmls number 403503 welcome back to ask the lawyer with mike connors welcome to the connors corner segment of ask the lawyer June 14th, 2017. You may not remember what happened that day, but our next guest can tell us about that day and what happened in the Washington area. Congressman Stephen Scalise, thank you for being on Connor's Corner. So what happened on I June 14th? We went on June 14th, uh, started like any other day. I was going to a baseball practice for a charity baseball game that Republicans have been playing against the Democrats for about 100 years. And uh, we play at the ma- Major League Ballpark, Washington Nationals. And raise about a half a million for local charities. Well, uh, a gunman showed up that day on the ball field, and he was intent on killing every Republican out there and uh, started shooting. Uh, I was playing second base at the time. Uh, I got hit, went down, and, um, you know, what the book back in the game talks about is all of the events that morning and then in the months following that uh, that helped me literally cover, recover from almost losing my life. I, I nearly died that day from the gunshot wounds, but, uh, there were a lot of miracles and a lot of, a lot of heroes that I, uh, that I chronicle and, uh, just wonderful people praying and offering support. I was able to, uh, to recover, to learn how to walk again and, uh, and ultimately to get back to the job I love, uh, serving in Congress. And the book is all about that, all about the journey, uh, you know, starting from that tragic day with the shooting and then going all through the recovery and all the the highs and lows and the roller coaster ride along the way. When is the first moment that you realized you were in danger? Um, the first shot that went out, I, I really didn't think it was a gunshot because you're not thinking, you know, somebody shooting a gun out on a ball field. I thought it was maybe a tractor backfiring. I thought I saw a John Deere tractor. And, um, and then by the time the second shot came, 
then you figure, okay, somebody's shooting a gun. And I never saw the shooter. And the next thing you know, I'm hit. And I went, I just started crawling away from the noise of the gunfire. And then I hear a lot more shots. And it was a, you know, pretty, pretty wild firefight. Um, you know, I, I knew as far as I knew, I could, I could have been hit again and it could be over. And so I just started crawling away. And after about 30 feet, my arms gave out. And then I just laid there and I, I could hear a different caliber of gunfire. Uh, which meant to me that the Capitol Police security detail that were with me that morning were firing back at the shooter. And, um, you know, you talk about heroes, Mike. Both uh, both of those Capitol Police officers, David Bailey and Crystal Griner, were shot during the shootout and still kept at it and uh, never gave up and ultimately took the shooter down and saved all of our lives. And I think a lot of people, are, or many people have forgotten that. Yeah, there's a lot about it that um, that probably people don't know. I mean, especially in the in the few minutes of the shootout itself, just exactly what happened and all the people that came together, including the Alexandria police who showed up on the scene and ultimately helped take the shooter down. And and then the uh, the people that were there on the ball field and some of their backstories, people who, uh, like Brad Wenstrup, who was uh, a major in the Army, uh, but a medical doctor and a member of Congress from, from Cincinnati area who was there that day. And he he knew immediately what had happened to me and came to my rescue when the shooter was down and put a tourniquet on to stop the bleeding. And that uh, that act alone saved my life because my, my trauma surgeon said when I arrived at the hospital, I had a zero blood pressure. And if the tourniquet wasn't applied just properly, I would not have made it uh, to the hospital alive. So, uh, so many stories like that that I detail in the book, uh, true heroes, true miracles, and uh and a lot of uh, a lot of good fortune. All right. So first, in effect, the Capitol Police saved your life. Then Congressman Weinstrop, who happens to be a medical doctor. How many members of Congress are medical doctors? I know it's there. Oh, it's uh, it's just you know you think about the, those miracles. The fact that Brad was there, and he said typically he leaves a little bit earlier from practice because he has a an eight o'clock meeting at his office. So he'd have left by you know by seven o'clock, and the shooting happened about ten minutes after seven. Uh, but for whatever reason, he said something told him to stay and go back to the batting cage. And he was in the batting cage when the when the gunfire started. And because he was a trauma surgeon in Iraq, he had seen those kind of injuries. Uh, and in my case, it was an injury wound with a 7.62 caliber bullet, very large bullet. Um, but there was no exit wound. And to some people, they, they just saw a little incision and figured, okay, there's a little bit of blood, but it can't be that bad. Uh, Brad knew right away it was really bad because the bullet – broke into hundreds of pieces and literally just started tearing through arteries and veins and organs and doing tremendous damage and ultimately leading to a massive blood loss. And he knew what was going on inside. And so that's why he applied the tourniquet and, uh, and ultimately allowed me to, to make it to the hospital alive. Okay. So next thing, I guess you're on the ambulance, you're on your way to the hospital. What's going through your mind? Oh my gosh. Uh, a lot was going through my mind in those immediate moments. Uh, you know, I started praying that you know, first thought I had was I've got a now an 11 year old daughter, and my first thought was, God, please don't Madison, don't let Madison have to walk up the aisle alone, and uh, and it just you know was an emotion that overtook me, and uh, and then I prayed that I'd uh, you know be able to see my wife and kids again, and I just you know was starting to ask God for some real specific things, and I had a numbness, almost like a calm that took over me once I put it in God's hands. And then for all the pain I probably should have felt, uh, really it was more numbness. And uh, then, you know, I heard a lot of people around me. I could see some of the people around me 
uh, when they got me onto the, the gurney initially, it was to put me into an ambulance. And uh, the ambulance was going to take me to George Washington Hospital. And as you can imagine, in rush hour traffic at about 7.30 in the morning, uh, the ambulance would have never made it. And they saw a helicopter coming, and they thought it was for me. So they turned around, and sure enough, the helicopter lands, and it's uh, and it's coming there to pick me up. And uh, they transferred me over, and four minutes later, I'm in the emergency room at MedStar Hospital. And, uh, you know, they had a great trauma team that was ready to go. And uh, they there was at least two moments throughout that day that they said they didn't think I was going to make it. But somehow they uh, they performed a lot of miracles themselves and uh, and got me through through the day and gave me a fighting chance. Now here's the thing: I I, I think first it, it seemed to me when it was first reported, it it didn't seem that it was reported that your life was in grave danger. That seemed to come out after. Yeah, initially they were reporting that I was shot around the hip, which I was. But to a lot of people, they just thought, oh, you know, it's it can't be that bad. It's not like you know to your head or to your heart. Uh, what they didn't realize is the bullet had, you know, first it had fractured my femur, shattered it, and then went through and broke my hip and pelvis, and then just started going through a lot of uh, a lot of arteries and ripping up and doing a lot of internal damage. And that uh, that's the part that people didn't see, but it was incredibly severe to the point where, you know, literally I showed up at the hospital with a zero blood pressure, uh, almost didn't make it, and, uh, and and luckily the the marvels of medicine really help pull me through at the hospital. You're at the hospital, you have your, your, your first surgery, but you're not out of the woods. Right. I, um, you know, I had an initial surgery where they were just trying to find all the places where the blood was leaking out of and, um, and try to sew up each vein. And then, you know, they put more blood in me and more would come out and they'd find that and they'd sew that up. And, you know, that went on for a while. They said I went through about 20 units of blood and, uh, the typical body takes about eight or nine units total. So, uh, I had a lot of blood going in and out of me during those first few hours. And uh, and then I got infections. There were some infections that set in just, you know, when you have your whole stomach opened up while they're performing that kind of surgery, you know, other things get inside there and caused some internal uh, infections that almost killed me the second time. And then luckily I was able to fight that off. So, uh, you know, we, we talk about all the different surgeries and twists and turns and, you know, and ultimately getting uh, discharged and, and getting out of the hospital and, you know, after the process of learning how to walk again, and even that was uh, quite a journey in and of itself. How did your wife react to this? Um, Jennifer uh, was initially kind of, it was like disbelief, you know, you can imagine getting a phone call and, and she and the kids were coming up to D.C. the next day to, to watch the baseball game. So, you know, she was just thinking, oh, you know, something happened to Steve and they're like, yeah, he'd been shot and nobody knew how bad it was. And, and she's kind of numb, like thinking, okay, this mustn't be that bad. Nothing. You know, what, what bad could happen, you know, at seven thirty in the morning on a baseball field. And, uh, you know, and then later she realized just how serious it was. And she was able to get on a plane and fly up to DC and she brought the kids and, you know, for the first few days, didn't tell them what had happened because she didn't know what was going to happen to me. And, uh, you know, by about the third day when I finally came out of the coma, uh, you know, she was able to bring the kids in and, you know, that was rough, too, just because they they're looking at me. And I mean, I'm I don't know how bad off I am, but I could tell in their face when they saw me, uh, you could see almost like a fear when they looked at me. I had tubes coming out of me. I, I was a mess. And uh, that's when I knew how bad I was. And, um, you know, and then they got to come see me every 
few days and I would get better and they saw me get better and, you know, they could tell I was getting better. And, and then that gave them a sense of relief. But Jennifer held everything together, the whole family, uh, especially in those first few days when, you know, when she's trying to protect the kids and trying to help me, you know, as, as they're making big medical decisions that I couldn't make because I was unconscious. When did you first feel or when were you in a position where, you know, hey, I'm going to live? Or did your family know, hey, I'm going to live? Well, uh, you know, it was it was probably maybe a week later uh, when when I'd been through the, the worst of the surgeries. And, you know, there were a few infections that set in, in in maybe like the two to three week period after. But at those those points, you're you're not thinking like that you're in a life threatening situation because. I was about to get discharged uh, right around July 4th, in fact. So I'd been in for a few weeks and getting better, and they had even started giving me a tentative release date. I think it was going to be like July 5th. And all of a sudden, on the 4th of July, I had this uh, this serious infection that uh, that almost took me again. And they had to wheel me into an emergency surgery late at night. And uh, and luckily, we were able to, uh, you know, cut me open and, and handle that infection. So it was just, you know, one thing after another like that. And then finally after that, I, uh, I got another release date a few weeks later. And, and I was actually starting to feel better physically and mentally. And, uh, you know, and once I got discharged to the rehabilitation hospital, then I knew I was at a point where I was just focusing on getting better. And, and that's when I had to learn how to walk again. And that was, it was excruciating physically, but at least mentally I knew I had made it through the worst parts. Just going over the story, it seems like divine providence was on your side down the line. Yeah, in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, just just all of the different things that happened, especially in those first few minutes, that, uh, you know, if you look at one or two of them in an isolated way, you'd say, okay, that's a coincidence, and that's a coincidence. And after a while, you say, okay, God was definitely playing a hand and, you know, and performing some real miracles that, that you know, each thing had to fall into place exactly like it did for all of us to live that day. And, uh, you know, I know, I know I'm lucky to be alive. Uh, I know how close I came to, to not making it and, uh, and how so many other people knew they were also, uh, you know, their lives were in the balance too. And fortunately God spared us all. How has your outlook on life changed since the shooting? Uh, my outlook on life really, it, it, more than anything, it focused me on what's most important in life. Uh, you know, I, I, I love my family, uh, but I, I think it made it even more important. I think my kids probably, uh, you know, they, they kind of warm up to their dad and, you know, they're, they're a lot more affectionate to me. And I think they realize how close I was too. And uh, I cherish every one of those moments. And, um, you know, I, I love my job and I, I really wanted to get back to work and I was able to do that. And, uh, you know, and if anything, maybe you just try to remove some of the clutter in your life, some of the things that, that aren't as important uh, that, you know, all of us do from day to day things. And, uh, you know, you just focus on what really matters in life. Now, speaking of your job, it's going to change in a couple of weeks. Yeah. What What is the future of the, you know, the Republican Party in the House? Well, you know, we, we lost the majority in the elections uh, just a week and a half ago. And it was really, really tough, uh, you know, and unfortunate to, to, to see what's, you know, what's happened. But, uh, you know, it's one of those things where we knew it was going to be a tough election cycle because any any first midterm of a, of a new president, they lose on average about 30 seats. And with a 23 seat majority, we knew that it was going to be a, a real uphill battle to keep the House. But we thought we had a real chance. And, uh, 
and we had a fighting chance. But, um, you know, we had a lot of things that went against us, not only history, but there was a lot of money that went against us, too. And we got heavily outraised. We've got to address that. Uh, you know, I think on some of the, the things that we stand for, we don't do a good enough job of telling people what we stand for. And we've got to get better at that, too. But, uh, you know, we're we're looking in the mirror right now at all those things. But I, I think, you know, Nancy Pelosi will likely be speaker again. She she moves usually a very far left agenda. And I don't think that's where the country is. I don't think that's where a lot of those members who got elected and flipped the House. Uh, it's going to be, uh, you know, it's going to be a day of reckoning for them to say, OK, the they campaigned saying that they were conservative and they wouldn't vote with Nancy Pelosi now that they're going to be in the Democrat majority. Which side are they going to choose? Are they going to stick with the promises they made in the campaign or are they going to vote with Nancy Pelosi and that, that new majority? Let me ask you this. I mean, I mean, a lot of people, a lot of the outside – well, I wouldn't say outsiders, but let's say part of, of the people who root for the Republicans for conservatives. Why didn't the message get out how good the economy was? Why didn't that seem to have a major impact? You know, everywhere I went, uh, in, in a lot of these swing districts I would go, people really liked the economy and how well it was doing, and they were benefiting from it. But it's almost like anything, you you know, when whatever the most important crisis is of the day uh, that you've got to deal with, if you put that fire out, you're moving on to the next crisis. We had gotten the economy moving again, and the economy uh, was, was benefiting workers at every level. I mean, middle and lower income people were benefiting. We were rebuilding our middle class, but it was almost like, okay, they were happy that they, you know, they got their job back or they got a pay raise. Then they started thinking about other things. And, you know, the Democrats, they did a, a really good job of, of raising large amounts of money and getting out a message, whether it was true or not. And a lot of the things they said during the campaign weren't true, but ultimately you've got to go and combat that as a, as a candidate or, you know, an incumbent, if you're being attacked, you've got to go set the record straight. And, uh, and I don't think we had the, the money and the, the resources to uh, to counter what they were doing. What's in your future, Congressman? What are your future plans? Well, uh, you know, I'm running for the position of, of Republican whip, you know, and unfortunately be in the minority, but uh, I have strong support from every segment of our Republican uh, conference, and I appreciate that. Um, you know, and I've got to refocus on what it's going to take to get the House back in two years. And, you know, if we're going to be able to keep working with this president, to keep building on the economic success we have, that's going to be with the House Republican majority. A lot of the big problems that are still facing us uh, from fiscal discipline that I think is still critically important uh, to, uh, to health care, which is getting worse because so many of the remnants of Obamacare are still making health care too, too costly. Uh, it's unaffordable for so many families and millions of people lost the good health care they had because of Obamacare. And that's going to continue to be a problem. And, uh, you know, we need to come back to that. We need to secure our border. We need to get back to national security. And, uh, you know, and I want to work with this president to do that in the next few weeks during this lame duck period. And we're not going to stop battling, even in the minority, to, uh, to fight for those conservative principles. Thank you, Congressman. The name of the book, Back in the Game, the author, Congressman Stephen Scalise. Thank you for what you've done for the country. Good luck to you. And, and we admire your service and how you got over this. Thanks so much, Mike. I really appreciate it and uh, appreciate your audience listening. I'm in a good place in my life. And I'm energized by new adventures. I've got friends to laugh with. And a good relationship. But even though I'm kind of comfortable, I sometimes wonder, is there something more? 
Could God in Church be what you're looking for? Come and see at CatholicsComeHome.com. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500 or connorsandsullivan.com. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. With me right now, we have a person who was a former guest on the show, Alexis Walkenstein. She was speaking about Archbishop Fulton Sheen, and she's got an event coming up at the Sheen Center in a, in a very short period of time. Can you tell us about that, Alexis? It's uh, We're going to be at the Sheen Center on December 9th, which is the memorial of Bishop Sheen's death uh, in 1979. So it's a special day, and I will be doing a lecture with Monsignor Hilary Franco, uh, one of Bishop Sheen's former assistants. So it's kind of the old generation and the new generation. I, of course, didn't know Bishop Sheen personally, but I know him spiritually, and I've been introducing him to a new generation through my new book and uh, excited to join Monsignor Franco. It's at 1 o'clock at the Sheen Center in New York. Okay, and those of you who haven't been at the Sheen Center, it's really quite a remarkable facility. It is. Who was Archbishop Fulton Sheen? Because I know a lot of the younger people in the audience have no idea, and probably some of the middle-aged people in the audience have very little idea. He was uh, a—he's known as truly—and people who are Catholic don't think of Catholics as televangelists, but he was dubbed uh, the country's first televangelist. He was an Emmy Award-winning Catholic bishop in New York, based in New York, but he was from Peoria, Illinois. He was a Midwesterner. Um, he was uh, really profound with his teaching and his writings. He wrote over 70 books on the faith, on Christ, and various topics related to the Catholic Church. And he had uh, an Emmy Award-winning show called Life is Worth Living. Uh, first, he was on radio during the dawn of radio and television, and uh, he went head-to-head with Milton Berle back in the day and, and actually beat him out in the ratings. Yeah, and I, I can't even tell you the, the impact he had on the culture back then, because obviously all his listeners weren't just Catholic. Right. You know, that's the interesting thing. You know, my last name is Jewish, Walkenstein, so my dad, who grew up Jewish in Revere, Massachusetts, and my Catholic mom, uh, my both my parents, their families sat around and watched Fulton Sheen every 
every Sunday night. As you would hear from a lot of different families around the country, he did have a magnetic way of attracting not just Catholics, but people of all different denominations because he really was able to present um, the truth of how to have a life worth living. So not just on Catholic moral teaching, but on um, things that really lifted the culture toward uh, the good, true, and the beautiful and to really um, live free free and enjoy um, and in a godly way. I understand Bishop Fulton Sheen is on the way to sainthood. He's now venerable. Can you explain that to the audience, what that means? Yes. Um, the Catholic Church has a very methodical way of, um, you know, elevating those uh, to the altar of, of sainthood, and Bishop Sheen is on his way. He, um, the first a process is you become servant of God, and then venerable would be the next step, which is after the Vatican has determined a life of holiness. So right now he's venerable Fulton J. Sheen. The next step in that process would be when the Vatican, after thorough investigation, would determine him to be blessed, in which he would be beatified, and there needs to be a miracle attributed to his intercession. So one thing that's really important to know about Bishop Sheen, Venerable Bishop Sheen, is that not only is he a profound and prolific, you know, teacher of the faith and and someone who is a a captivating evangelist, but he's an intercessor. He's actually one that we can go to in the church because we believe in the intercession through the body of Christ. We can ask him for favors, for blessing, uh, ask him to go to Jesus for us and intercede for a particular area of need. And then the church investigates um, level of miracles. So we're waiting for the church to look at um, some things that have been presented to the Vatican to determine a miraculous intervention. Um, and then after beatification and blessed, when that happens, uh, there would be the actual canonization and another miracle would be required for that as well. Bishop Sheen, uh, yes, he was very big in the media on TV in the 50s. What's his relevancy to today in the, the 21st century? Oh, I mean, he he was prophetic. He was timeless. The faith uh, is completely, in, you know, the positive faith is is as relevant now as it was then. And he, you know, he speaks truth to power. Um, in our current time, you know, um, in my little book, I compile some of his wisdom under five major buckets, um, God being fire, human freedom, uh, the divine love, sin, and knowing Jesus. And Fulton Sheen very powerfully and prophetically um, and, and in line with what the church says, it has a way of presenting the faith and bringing supernatural realities into um, a, a modern vernacular that the church, um, past, present, and future, can understand and, and really digest and, and apply to its life. So I encourage anyone who hasn't read anything of Sheen to maybe pick up my little book. called. That's Fort what Nation I was going to ask you about, yes. Yeah. yeah. What's the or name of your book? One of his, my book is called Fulton J. Sheen. It's from the Ex Libra series by the Pauline Media Nuns. You can order it on Amazon or Pauline.org. Um, or he's got 70 volumes, Life of Christ, Treasure and Clay, Three to Get Married. Um, he talks about all kinds of things. Um, these are the sacraments, which gives an unbelievable teaching on what the sacramental life of the church is all about and how we receive power from the sacraments. I mean, the, the world is looking for power, right? And so much, it's, it's a false power. And Fulton Sheen reminds us where power resides in the church through the sacramental life of the church. When you said supernatural realities, what do you mean? Well, you know, um, heaven is supernatural, and sometimes we are in a fog here on the earth to, to realize because we're dealing with the unseen. 
uh, the supernatural realities of our faith, um, the Trinity, the Blessed Mother, um, the Eucharist and transubstantiation, the Mass, the supernatural realities that are connected into our earthly witness, Fulton Sheen is able to bridge the two in such a powerful way in the way that he teaches and instructs. I encourage anyone um, who's seeking more um, in their faith or just doesn't understand to, to read him and to chew on his words and to let it sink in and, and to inform you and inform your conscience. Alexis, where where are the mortal remains of, of Archbishop Sheen interred? That's an interesting question. Bishop Sheen's body right now is under the main altar at St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York. And um, that's actually where I had a really powerful experience. You know, I'm a daughter of John Paul II's pontificate. I was really, you know, under that papacy. So Bishop Sheen wasn't my generation. And yet Bishop Sheen crashed into my world in a, in a profound way. I was sort of praying to him because I went to work for a bishop in Palm Beach. And we had some difficult times in the church, as we see now. And I was asking him for intercession in the work that I do. And I ended up in New York. And at St. Patrick's Cathedral, and I saw the engraved kneeler behind the altar with a prayer to then servant of God, Fulton Joshin, and I realized he was buried in the crypt. And I asked the guards to let me down below to pray inside. And when I had five intentions, I asked Fulton Joshin to help me with our Lord to obtain these difficult intentions. And I said, if you help me, I'll promote you. And immediately when I came out onto Fifth Avenue, I turned on my phone, and I had an email from a priest I never met before who invited me. He introduced himself as the priest who was the head of the cause for canonization of Fulton Sheen. And he said he heard about me, and he wanted to know if I would help promote the cause in South Florida where I worked. And I couldn't believe it. He was with the cause for canonization in Peoria, Illinois, and here I was where the body was in New York. And, um, you know, something powerful in our faith about being in the presence of the, of the saints and being near the man of God. And for me, it was a very profound experience. And um, if anyone makes a visit to St. Patrick's Cathedral, he is there and you can um, pray behind, you know, the main altar. I sort of toss my reins to the crypt. If you have <laughs> a way to do the same thing, you might get, get uh, a blessing and be able to be escorted down and have some access. But it's a very powerful experience to be praying with the saints and a saint to be like Fulton Sheen. I think the guards there are, pr- are pretty receptive, you know, to, to people of faith. Right. Oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, I think, um, you know, it, it's just a blessing, a treasure in the church um, to have, you know, what we say is, you know, God, we say in our prayers, blessed be God and his angels and in his saints. And uh, these are these are people who have gone heroically before us and lived uh, a valiant, heroic Christian witness, and they can help us do the same. Alexis, you're going to have any of your books on sale at the Sheen Center? I believe so. I believe so. So I hope if you're listening to this that you will come to the Sheen Center. It is a remarkably cool facility in lower Manhattan. Um, it's a beautiful spot, very artsy, theatrical. We're going to have a wonderful time. It is on a special day dedicated to Fulton Sheen. And um, I'll be able to meet you and you'll be able to meet um, Monsignor Hillary Franco as well, and it will just be a really wonderful day. So it's Sunday, December 9th, obviously 2018, at 1 p.m. at the Sheen Center on, on Bleecker Street. Uh, if yes, you haven't seen I'm, the neighborhood, it's worth seeing. Yeah, the I think you have to get a ticket in advance. It's free, but if you go online to the Sheen Center, you want to just register so that you have a seat. 
Right. And sometimes things at the Sheen Center do sell out, even if it's especially if it's free. They do. So, you know, get your reservation in right away. Alexis, thank you for being on Connor's Corner. Thank you for what you're doing for uh, Archbishop great Fulton to Sheen. See you, I look forward to seeing you in New York. Very good. God bless. Okay. Well, Archbishop Fulton Sheen, you know, December 9th. Let's not miss it. Uh, Civil War Roundtable. We're going to be meeting on December. I'm sorry, December 10th. I'm looking at the schedule right now. Yes, Monday, December 10th, 3 West Club, 3 West 51st Street. Doors open at 5.30, dinner at 6, uh, $50 for members, $60 for non-members. You get a three-course meal and an interesting conversation. Now, originally, we were going to have the uh, the great Bud Robertson come in and speak because he likes to come to New York in December, but he had a bout of pneumonia, so we have to get a pinch hitter. And um, go ahead. For all the prayers for his health, but we look, we'll let you know on Ask the Lawyer whenever we know who our speaker is going to be for the well, Civil no, War Well, no, it's going to be Matthew Borowick. Okay. Oh, excellent. And he's going to be talking about the court-martial of Fitzjohn Porter, which is one part of the Civil War I think a lot of people don't know anything about, So, because it's not exactly like Fitzjohn Porter is one of the, you know, the top uh, discussion points of the Civil War. But Matthew Borowick, he's from New Jersey. He's a member of the Robert E. Lee Civil War Roundtable of New Jersey. We look forward to it. It'll be something different. And, you know, I just hope Bud Robertson is uh, is doing okay. Now, we heard Bud Robertson speak at Gettysburg, and he gave a great speech at the 25th anniversary of the premiere of the movie Gettysburg. And, you know, he he's obviously outspoken politically, but uh, he made a lot of good points about that the people that uh, want to tear down the statues of Robert E. Lee are evil. And that's his opinion, and I wouldn't disagree with him. I think any erasing of history is just a, yeah, a shame. And I mean, he's an old style Virginian, you know, one of those old Virginia gentlemen, and uh, he he loves history, and he 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 loves, you know, talking about it. And I remember one time he said the reason why, you know, battles in academia are so fierce is because the stakes are so low. And I always that was a great, <laughs> a great quote. So. Civil War Roundtable, we won't be able to get to see Bud Robertson, but we will see Matthew Barwick, the court-martial of Fitz John Porter. Now, again, you know, let's not forget George Herbert Walker Bush. We lost him today, great American. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I don't know what else we can say. You know, he lived a full life, but, you know, he served in the armed forces of the United States. He served in Congress. He, you know, he created jobs. He, you know created businesses he you know met the payroll each week i thought i always thought that was a great line and i mean going back and you know any of the guests on your show that knew him personally just you hear nothing but glowing re- recommendations about his personal character you know stories about his humility uh mm-hmm. he, you know and the other thing you see sometimes that people don't necessarily know about him is apparently he had a great sense of humor and that's a side to him that doesn't always get come across in the media but yeah. So may he rest in peace. God bless the family. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, we, we have to search the archives. And I did an interview with <laughs> I'm sorry, I got a little bit of a cold. I did an interview with John Sununu, who was his chief of staff. And I consider that one of my best interviews. So we're going to have to have some quotes or whatever, mm-hmm. because, you know, John Sununu's book was The Quiet Man. And it was about the, the George Herbert Walker Bush presidency. And you know, we lost a great American today. What more can we say? All right. Now, Beth, Michael, mm-hmm. your mother's not here tonight. 
But if somebody wants to ask us a question on the email, how do they do that? All right. We've made it very easy. It's going to be Ask Mike Connors. That's one word, no spaces. Ask Mike Connors, C-O-N-N-O-R-S, at gmail.com. So once again, that's askmikeconnors at gmail.com. Okay. And so, you know, we usually get to ask – we answer every question directly or indirectly. Now, I have to admit, every once in a while with the email questions, I don't have enough information to give a complete answer. But we can send back and try to get more information. And, you know, not every single question obviously gets read on the show, but most do. And if you have any questions about elder law, you know, even if you don't hear us talk about it, you know, sometimes there are some things that might be important to you but are not important to <coughs> other people. And I think next week we're gonna, I'm going to try to answer some questions that have been backlogged about VA benefits. Mm-hmm. And VA benefits have, have changed a little bit over the last couple of years. But there are programs with the VA where, let's say, a homebound veteran can get paid or his family can get paid 2000 a month to help keep him at home. And by a veteran, you have to be on active duty during time of, of war. So there are different dates, obviously World War II before December 31st, 1946, the Korean War, which as far as the, the VA is concerned, ended in uh, January 31st, 1955. Then Vietnam started in 61. Unfortunately, the guys who served in between 1955 and 1961 are not veterans. But there is one some good news for them. And by the way, and I should have mentioned this in a pre- prior show, if you served in the, the armed forces, the military of the United States, between 1955 and 1961, ordinarily you were not considered a veteran. But now you can get a real estate tax exemption if you served during that time of war or if you're a widow. Listen, we're running out of time. See you next week. Ask the lawyer with me, Mike Connors, tonight accompanied by my son, Michael. Have a good night, everyone. Voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this song away. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 